0: I'm Taylor Carmen, a professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I lecture on things like truth and beauty, and I write books and articles about existentialism and the meaning of life. And I'm Eric Kaplan. I'm a TV writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy. And this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to be Terrified by Them, a philosophy podcast in which or on which we look at terrifying questions and think about them and try to find our way to a place of courage where we can deal with them rationally and reflectively.
1: That sounds great. And at some point, we should start one which is not terrifying questions and how to be terrified by them. Um, But not yet. So what's our terrifying question this week? Our terrifying question this week is, are we our bodies? Are we our bodies? Huh. Well, I can see how that would be terrifying because uh, my body could get hit by a bus. Um, yeah. yeah,
0: and your body will eventually turn into mud and muck it'll, and dust. It'll become mud of some sort, yes. Ash and nothing. Yeah. Yes. So there's mortality lurking in the background, that's for sure. I would say
1: so. And then also all the shocks that flesh is heir to. Exactly. Like um, you could get COVID and become foggy Um, <laughs> or... It seems that when people get old, they become cranky yeah. and they watch a lot of Fox News and they become very conservative. <laughs> so there's all sorts of
0: things that we're vulnerable to if we are our bodies. The body is very vulnerable, yeah, and changeable. Yeah. And yeah, so there's all kinds of ways to be worried about this disease and aging and decrepitude and mental decline and cognitive decline. And yeah, and we we talked about freedom. So here here's
1: one thing I, I do want to say. Yeah. Well, let's be honest here. Lurking in the background is Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who's an important 20th century philosopher who's written about this. I sense his presence. And I think he's really important. Uh, You're an expert on him. Most of our listeners, I think, may either not be familiar with him at all or just sort of view him as a footnote figure, yeah. you know, palling around with Simone de Beauvoir <laughs> and Jean-Paul
0: Sartre. That's right. But who was Maurice Merleau-Ponty and why is he important? Maurice Merleau-Ponty was a French phenomenologist who was a friend and contemporary of Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre and was co-editor of their journal, Les Temps Modernes. And he is not quite as famous as Sartre and de Beaufort and Camus and a lot of folks in that crowd. But in academia, he was more prestigious and famous. He had a chair at the Collège de France and he was a big shot. He influenced French philosophers who later turned out to be structuralists and post-structuralists.
1: Oh, who did he influence? When did he flourish and who did he
0: influence? Right. <laughs> so he was born in 1908 and mm-hmm. he died young in 1961. So he was writing his books in the 1940s and 50s mostly, so a relatively short period of time. And yeah, I mean, his influence has been broad. I mean, like I say, a lot of philosophers who went on to do very different work from his were going to his lectures at the Collège de France. Um, he's influenced people in cognitive science, contemporary cognitive science, because he was so concerned about the body, and uh, he really thought— that we are our bodies and all of our experience, even the most abstract kind of thinking we engage in, is somehow dependent on and anchored in our bodily perceptual experience. So he was trying to recover that and show how that really is pervasive in our whole experience and understanding of ourselves. Okay, well... Give an example. Why
1: does he think that something that other people might think is not bodily is really bodily?
0: Well, for example, like a lot of things you might think are just really basic beliefs or assumptions in your mind. Mm-hmm. He thinks are anchored in your bodily experience. Like that when you're walking down the street, every time you take a step, will the ground hold you up? Like, do you do you believe that? If I ask you if you believe it, you might want to say... Yeah, I guess I believe that. I guess that's one of my assumptions. I assume the ground will hold me up when my foot hits the ground. Um and so we have a we have an inclination to Uh, fold that into a cognitive or intellectual attitude about the world that we have in our minds. And he wants to say, that's really nothing like a belief or an assumption or a mental state at all. It's um, what your body knows how to do when it knows how to walk. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's sort of built into walking that you don't and can't really stop and wonder every time you take a step whether the ground is going to hold you up, or every time you take a breath, whether there will be something to breathe in. And so put it this way, our intelligence is anchored in our bodies.
1: So our primary engagement with the world is physical skills rather than mental representations.
0: Something like that. Yeah, that's right. We can talk about what the word physical means, because I think that's a source of a lot of confusion. But yeah, at first Mm -hmm. pass, that's right. Bodily, let's say bodily skills, how to stand upright, keeping your balance. I mean, this is something other animals do. It's not like unique to us. So we share a lot of basic bodily comportment skills with other animals. And it's very far from what we think of as cognitive activity, like doing math problems or playing chess or something like that. But even when you play chess, ah, here's an interesting thing about chess people who are good at playing chess apparently have this sort of heuristic which is nothing like doing a computation about calculating future moves, 10 moves, 12 moves ahead or something like that but they describe a strategy of maintaining control of the center of the board Mm -hmm. and that's a very what we sometimes call a gestalt Mm -hmm. phenomenon and it's kind of quasi perceptual you're seeing the board, now maybe if you're really a great chess player you can close your eyes and just imagine it, but you're seeing strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats and dangers, and that's quasi-perceptual. That's already something that arguably we wouldn't have if we didn't have perception. And computers that I say, quote-unquote, play chess don't have anything like that, so they have right. to do something completely different, which is massive computations right, right, right. many possible thousands of moves, which we don't
1: do. We don't. So... so- in your day job, when you're you're not a podcast host, you'll do things like <laughs> someone will give a, a presentation on a philosophical topic, and then you'll go in and you'll debate them. Is that a perceptual skill, too? Are you perceiving uh, the weaknesses in their arguments in the way that we could perceive the, I don't know, the weakness in a boxer
0: coming at us, you know? Ah, uh, maybe. You know, actually, what I do think, and Merleau-Ponty doesn't talk too much about this. Some other gestalt psychologists have talked about things like this, that even when you're thinking abstractly, there's a way in which your imagination is active. And uh, you may actually be sort of imagining things in a kind of spatial way, that there are openings and relationships mm-hmm. uh, between things. As I know I do that. I
1: do that too. I feel that when I'm coming up with a story, mm. I sort of have a sense of where the tension is, where the energy is, where is it leading? And that's a sort of... a bodily feeling. I don't see pictures. It's not like pictures are floating in space in front of me that I'm examining. But I would say I probably do feel it as some sort of a bodily skill.
0: I think it's definitely exercise of imagination, which is often very tied to space and time. Mm -hmm. So there's a spatio-temporal element. And I think, um, yeah, when it comes to writing time is very important, or humor when it comes to timing, you know, that the pace of the rhythm. And uh, I think even when I write prose, you know, and I'm just writing, one has a sense of the rhythm of the sentence, where it sort of can end without being awkward. or Right, you let some energy out, yeah. and it gets away to, from you, and then you bring it back. Right, exactly. <laughs> and there's a rhetorical sort of aspect, even of often very formal prose, that it has a sort of pace and a kind of um, rhythm, so yeah, I now, I think one has to be careful not to try to reduce things that are not obviously perceptual to just sort of covert kinds of perception. So it's not like every single intellectual thing you do is really a form of perception. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can say that it may depend upon perception in various ways. Like perception is the kind of the soil it grows out of. So even when it's very abstract, Uh it still has a kind of trace or there's a vestige of something intuitive built into it. But the idea is not to deny that there's abstract cognitive intellectual stuff going on in our minds, whatever that means, but just not to suppose that that can be completely separated from the intuitive bodily spatial temporal orientation that we have just when we move around and reach for things and so on, without thinking. A really important part of this idea is to set limits on thought. We don't have to be thinking in any very substantive sense of thinking in order to reach for a glass and grab a glass. Mm -hmm. Um, Merleau-Ponty says when you reach for a glass, you don't have to begin by knowing where your hand is and then figuring out where to move it to to get to the glass. It's like the glass is there and you know how to reach it Mm -hmm. without thinking about your hand at all. Right. Now,
1: uh, guys, there's so many things I want to ask. So, But just to clarify, it does seem like... So Aristotle says that we are an animal that thinks or an animal that talks reasonably or something like that. Uh, And it sounds like Merleau-Ponty is saying, so there's lots of animals that don't think. Mm -hmm. And this is a description of an animal that it does this special thing, which is think. Uh But
0: there's nothing as far as we know that thinks but isn't an animal. No. So <laughs> in fact it might so, it might be impossible. We had a we had right. an episode on so, uh, artificial intelligence right. in which I was pushing that so, line. Yeah, I think it might be impossible. Right. So
1: yep. so sometimes he uses the phrase parasitic yep. that is sort of like this is a special added feature on top of a bunch of bodily skills and capacities. And, and it couldn't exist without them.
0: Uh, yeah, it couldn't exist without them. But I think he's also very careful to avoid one pitfall, which is to think it's merely an extra feature added on that doesn't affect any of the others.
1: Oh, so maybe I was falling into that pit. Yeah. So what? how do we avoid that? Uh,
0: Good question. (laughs) Uh, I think one thing he says is that it's the kind of addition that transfigures everything else that was already there. All right. Now, I'm not sure how much I believe this. I sometimes think he exaggerates this a bit, but his idea is when he says something like the way that, like a piece of jewelry will transfigure a face, the Mm -hmm. way a face looks, there's something right about this. It's also a gestalt phenomenon, that the whole thing will look different thanks to the addition of one little detail. Another example he gives when he's talking about painting because he talks a lot about painting is uh, some painters in the early Renaissance, like maybe Frangelico, started doing something that painters were not doing in the Middle Ages, which is when they paint a face, a portrait, they'll put one little dot of white in the eye, which is like the reflection of light. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the whole face looks animated and alive in a way that it doesn't. It looks kind of dull and a little dead if you don't have that reflection. But it's just one little spot of white. And the interesting thing about that is was when you look at the face when you look at the painting you don't notice that dot Mm -hmm. but the whole face looks different right so i think he thinks it's like that like yes we're an animal that also has judgment and thought in this particular sense But it's not just one additional feature. It sort of changes everything we do so that when we eat, we're dining, Mm -hmm. you know, no other animals dine (laughs) when they eat. And if we behave in an animalistic way, we're a degraded human rather than an animal. Uh, Yeah, but again, I think we have to be careful. It may be that the Christian despising of the body because it's animal and sinful and so on is part of this illicit separation of the mind or the spirit from the body because it's by drawing a sharp contrast that you can then kind of condemn all the bodily stuff as lower and base and not worthy of respect if you really think that we're transformed by our intelligence uh, beyond what any other animal can do. If it's really transformative, maybe it's a mistake to think of our bodily appetites as just what animals have. Right. It's not. I mean right. they're they're whole they're different. I mean we have fingers. Other animals have appendages that look like fingers. But you know, we play the violin and we sew and we do all kinds of things uh from the outset we're different in a holistic way from other animals.
1: Okay. So this is all very interesting. I want to take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, I, I just so I don't forget, I do want to make the distinction between this and sort of a limitative materialistic reductionism. Oh, yeah. Because I think that's important. And it's almost like we have to do a little bit of stage setting before we can actually get into our terrifying question. But I think it's worth it. So let's take a break. Okay, that was a good break. Um so how is this he seems to me and you told me also in an email so I, I know that it is true, mm. that he's not simply saying, Well, there's a bunch of matter and some of that matter has been, thanks to the the blind watchmaker of evolution, become a self replicating machine right. and and we're that right so he doesn't say that so he's not an eliminative materialist reductionist right why not Ah. or how how not (laughs) the
0: answer to that question is something more to do with what he's doing Uh, Mm -hmm. and he's doing phenomenology and what that means is trying to give a description of our experience as we live it from our point of view so he is kind of avowedly first personal perspective descriptive project. Is
1: it his first person plural perspective? Is he saying this is how we find ourselves?
0: That's a better way to put it because actually one of the best chapters in this big book he's most famous for called Phenomenology of Perception is about our relations to others and he really thinks we are completely entwined with others from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean he and Sartre and Heidegger all agree about this. They have slightly different versions of the idea but yeah there's no way to begin with just a single Cartesian cogito, as we say, the single isolated self. We're already with others and and interlaced, intertwined with them and so on. So yeah, how we find ourselves is with others, with this experience. Now, he contrasts that with what he calls objective thought, which is the way that modern science, especially, and metaphysics attempts to just describe the world from either no point of view at all or God's point of view or something like that, a God's eye point of view. So, in a way, a lot of these traditional metaphysical problems, like the mind-body problem, are really metaphysical problems. Their attempt to bring a kind of scientific spirit of objectivity to this puzzle or problem about how does consciousness or thinking or experience relate to the physical world as described by mechanics. Merleau-Ponty is not trying to solve that problem at all. Right. He's trying to describe the background experience we have that allows us even to pose that problem to ourselves, mm-hmm. or, how, or to even to sort of wander into it. Yeah, what so. kind
1: of beings could be confused by this sort of thing. Okay, yeah. so so here's the map that I want to lay out. Yeah. Um there are dualists who think that mind and body are separate. Mm-hmm. And then there are materialists who think that there are just physical systems. Mm -hmm. And then there's (laughs) Merleau-Ponty, and I think you and probably me, who are sort of existential phenomenologists Mm -hmm. and think that we start from the experience of the lived body and we understand a lot of other things by making that our home base and working out from that.
0: Is that a fair map? Yeah, I think so. And I think the way to understand this third position that you and I probably occupy is something like, uh, you could understand it diagnostically or genealogically, like, how did we wind up with these concepts of mind and body that we can't seem to fit together again? How did we wind up with these notions? And it turns out they have a history. Hmm. The idea of mind comes from soul, which has a whole interesting, fascinating ancient prehistory, which is very complicated. But the idea of physical is also, didn't just fall out of the sky. When you say material, you might wonder, well, what counts as material? is energy, material. You know, in the ancient world, the body contrasted with things that were kind of vaporous and misty, like a cloud or, you know, the spirit Mm -hmm. was the breath or air that comes out of your mouth. And when you die, it comes out and doesn't go back in and you don't have your spirit in you. And that's... So all these concepts have a history and have produced what we call this metaphysical problem about the mind and the body. And then materialism and dualism are theoretical attempts to solve that problem.
1: So this is an interesting thing, uh, just from sort of the intellectual history of it, Mm -hmm. is that in the academy and sort of in the world of reflective intellectual people, there are a lot of people who sort of take feminism, colonialism, anti-racism, Queer studies, they take all this stuff seriously. And they're often at odds with your more STEM people. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that the first group of people, the sort of more politically, historically educated and engaged academics, do they come out of phenomenology?
0: Not necessarily, but it's been a major pillar of the humanities and the social sciences in the 20th century. So there are these grand theoretical traditions. Phenomenology is one among several. There was structuralism, and there was Marxism and psychoanalysis, the influence of Hegel and Kant, and it's a broad spectrum of Mm -hmm. ideas that get clustered in something like what we call the humanities and certain parts of the social sciences, but I think they contrast with something like science or scientific ambitions, especially in the natural sciences. This is why the so-called social sciences are sort of right in the middle of this battleground. Interesting, Because there's a fight over them about how to make them either much more scientific, like the natural sciences, or how to acknowledge that they have to be rooted in what Kant called the human point of view. So I think this is a major division or kind of If it's not exactly a battle line, it's something like a a rift in contemporary intellectual life between something like the humanities, the Geisteswissenschaft and and the Naturwissenschaft and the natural sciences. So phenomenology is one of the major contributors to the humanistic way of thinking. Okay, I was taking a long backswing to
1: get to this question, which is people will sometimes say we're scientists and what we're looking at when we're looking at a human being is a almost like a biological piece of hardware running an intellectual
0: program. And what do you think about that? (laughs) (laughs) That's a very recent technological metaphor. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, rewind a few decades and you've got the light bulb over the head and you've got the telegraph and maybe the mind is like a pump. What I thought you were going to say is that that's a form of dualism in fancy dress. Oh, well, I think that's a fair point. I think you can. If you really think it's a program, then it's an abstract entity. And how it has causal powers is a good question. (laughs) Um, So if we are
1: our bodies... yeah. Sometimes people say they talk about the rapture of the nerds, uh-huh. and they say, "I'm not gonna die because myself yeah. will be uploaded into the cloud <laughs> oh yeah, um, that's <laughs> do you think that yeah. that's possible no <laughs> no okay I... w- w-
0: why not <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, um. Oh boy! I mean, I don't know that I have a knockdown argument against it, but it is so obviously a religious fantasy dressed up in technical. Sounding I'm surprised I thought you were going to language. say
1: you do have a knockdown argument against it <laughs> because a mind requires an embodied animal to be part of oh. and to to down to upload my. I mean, if like if a a gazelle said, I'm going to upload my horns into the web, you'd be like, (laughs) I don't think that makes
0: any sense. Yeah, Um, if I'm right about that. But the question is whether I have a knockdown argument for my claim and Merleau-Ponty's claim that that we are our bodies, that we just are our bodies. I mean, I'm saying that because I think it's the most plausible sort of thing to say. Once the question comes up, like, uh, are we a soul? I don't think so. I'm putting the bar for knockdown argument very high, just to to maintain some humility about this. That um, it's not like I've got a refutation that'll just demolish this view altogether. I'm
1: worried that in this debate where others do not maintain humility, (laughs) that your argument will seem weaker because of your admirable humility
0: but anyway that we're humbled sure. in our education when we realize sure. that um the arguments almost never settle these questions and especially mm-hmm. in philosophy philosophy is almost defined by the field in which the main questions and controversies never get settled by argument even though right if it had
1: been settled it would be chemistry yeah, exactly so no and even be, though yes. philosophers
0: okay. fetishize arguments as if that's going to be the solution to everything um they turn out never to actually do so though they may push the boundaries of your understanding a bit further so they're useful tools but here's what I. I think—I mean, the problem with a view like, I'm going to upload my consciousness, like I think uh, Kurzweil thinks he's going to take handfuls of vitamins every day and live long enough until the singularity happens, and then he can upload his consciousness. The problem with that is it's (laughs) just—it rests on so many completely implausible and crazy assumptions that you don't even know where to begin— uh, but one place to begin is the idea that the mind is anything like a computer. Uh-huh. And I think, again, it's not that there's a one knockdown argument against the view. I just think there's hardly any reason to think it's true. It's a bold hypothesis that has almost nothing going for it, I think. Well, I mean,
1: here's here's to play uh, devil's etiquette. I mean, like sure, a computer can tell you that 8 plus 5 is 13 and... A person can tell you with their mind that 8 plus 5 equals 13. So yeah. that's similar. What's the maybe com- the mind yeah. is
0: like a computer. Well, <laughs> maybe the mind is like an abacus. Maybe the mind is like a pile of stones where you can put three down and then put two more down and then you've got five stones. And then now, has the pile of stones told you anything about how many stones well, are there?
1: I think what a lot of people would say who believe in this point of view, mm-hmm. that the world is made of, well, or maybe not. you don't need to say it's made of, but it has information in it. Mm. It has physical systems that are capable of processing this information. Mm -hmm. And the pile of stones and the abacus and the computer and the brain at a high enough level of abstraction are all doing the same thing, which is adding 5 and 8 and getting 13.
0: I think the problem with that is... That's functionalism,
1: right? Have, have yeah, I just... yeah,
0: that's right. Okay, I, and that's the, functionalism. I think one problem with that is you don't know where to stop. I mean, how do you know how to apply the concept of information to physical systems? I mean, every time an electron jumps from one energy level to another, is that information? Is every time a cloud rolls over the landscape, is that information? I, I think you lose your grip on how to apply the concept of information if you just want to... Apply it to everything. I think that's true. I also I was thinking about even
1: like the concept of math. I've had conversations with people, which is like, when did humans discover math? When it was when it was Mm. when the first caveman Mm. looked at his four the four people in his family and decided to pick up four turnips. (laughs) so that they would each have one turn up. But then I thought, well, was it the first time a dog was a little bit thirsty and just drank a little, and then when it was really Uh, thirsty, it drank a lot?
0: (laughs) And then I thought,
1: well, if the dog is doing math, then the whole issue has slipped through my fingers because I don't understand what doing math is.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think actually once you start looking at the natural phenomena, you start realizing you have to sharpen your concepts a lot Mm -hmm. to distinguish one thing from another. Interestingly, only primates like us and some monkeys will actually keep track of numbers of things. So a dog will never be able to recognize the difference between a pile of three bones and a pile of four bones.
1: But it can recognize the difference between a
0: little piece of meat and a big piece of meat. And that's a judgment of quantity. Maybe. How would you test whether it's judging the size? I mean, it'll respond to it differently. Well, I would give it a choice between the two of them and see which one it went to. Well, how do you know that it doesn't just smell better? The smell is stronger. Oh, uh, I don't know. They may put it in a bag. <laughs> <laughs> Here's how you can tell the difference between uh, numeracy, I think they call it, and, mm-hmm. and lack of numeracy. There are monkeys. You can do magic tricks for them. You show them three apples at, on a little stage, and then you put the curtain down, and then you take one apple away, and the curtain goes up, and there's only two apples left. The monkeys will look around. They'll do this kind of double take, like, where's the other one? Mm-hmm. Like, they notice it's not there. Mm-hmm. Cats and dogs will never notice that. They don't do that. that. It's interesting. They will never do that. So it's a really a primate capacity.
1: I was just thinking about how there's also analog math it's not only digital math But this is a bit a a little bit of a um a little bit of a side journey because what i'm thinking now is like okay so why would we believe that we are our bodies ah and Mm -hmm. and i was thinking like one one reason that i might think i'm not my body is that i can cut my hair
0: Ah, i see
1: (laughs) and a part of me does not I mean, really, I'm not left on the barber shop floor. Right, right. It's me. I made the decision to cut my hair, and that makes me think that my hair is not me.
0: Uh-huh. I mean—
1: What do you think of that argument? I
0: Yeah, I'm not sure what to think of it, except that you might say either it's a not very important part of you or it's not part of your body. I mean, you know, what's part of the body and what isn't, actually? I mean, are fingernails part of the— What
1: about my tooth? Yeah. Like, I, ha- yeah. I when I had to get orthodontia, they had to reach into my mouth and pull out a tooth. Uh-huh. Um, And that was a weird experience, but I didn't... Again, I didn't Uh feel like I left part of me behind in the dentist. Ah,
0: good. Well, this is part of what starts to motivate a dualist way of thinking. And I think it's important Mm -hmm. to give... Dualism some credit for actually recognizing this conceptual difference, which is that it doesn't seem like the self is divisible in the way the body is. This is what Descartes thought. Mm -hmm. This is one reason to think maybe the self or the soul is really something very different from the body. Because just like you can chop off your hair or pull out a tooth or chop off your arm or a leg for that matter, it doesn't look like we have a concept for chopping out part of your soul or dividing your soul in half. It looks like, in other words, even after you get your tooth extracted, or even after you get a limb amputated, there's still as much of you there. It's not like we only have 80% of Eric now that he had that operation
1: right and this isn't to use a grim example that i don't like to think about if if i suffer some sort of cognitive impairment yeah it's me impaired right it's not half of you 70 of me right and, exactly. and people who talk that way i think are being metaphorical but, yeah. but what's really is me qua ill yeah. person diminished or me drunk is me yeah in my experience as a drunken person <laughs>
0: There are weird phenomena that do press on this intuition that the self is indivisible.
1: Oh, you're talking about the Gazzaniga stuff, about the split brain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's I very mean, interesting.
0: That's really interesting. But but I think the upshot of that is that we still don't really know what to say about what's going on when people, you know, when their left hand starts doing stuff that they're not aware of, that they're not meaning to do. They, ah, I don't know how much detail to go into this, but some people who have their two hemispheres separated by the severing of the corpus callosum to avoid extreme epileptic fits, often wind up with their left hand, which is governed by the right side of their brain, which is not in control of language, doing stuff that the person is not linguistically aware of, with the left hemisphere of their brain. So there's one case, it's called alien hand syndrome, and there was a guy who would button up his shirt and then he'd start doing something else and his left hand would start unbuttoning the shirt. Okay. And he would be surprised. Now- anyway, very weird, but do, but do you say there's two people in there? That doesn't seem mm-hmm. right. So, so I think that the Cartesian intuition is pretty robust that even then, we don't know what to say, but I don't think we want to say there's a, another person in there. I mean, who is it, after all? <laughs> it's, it's something that's happening to this person. So our idea of a person, I think, is very... It really requires that there just be one. Now,
1: I'm going to say something which i am sort of been thinking more and more, and it's a little bit weird, but I guess I think, um, like, a person might be a fractal concept mm-hmm. in the sense that I think part of being a person is that you have arguments with yourself. Yeah. So that part of being a person is being made up of smaller people <laughs> who are in there talking <laughs> with each other. And I know that that's weird because yeah. you think, well, that sounds like a regress. <laughs> like, Yeah, what are but, those persons? But I think they're also <laughs> like that. And, yeah, I see. and And I feel like maybe that's just how it works. And also part of being a person is being part of larger groups where they can have demands on you and ask you for things and respond. Oh, that's that's maybe right. Ask you to do things. Yeah. And I don't know where that leaves us with the guy who has his tooth pulled out or his arm chopped off. But I do think that the idea that the self is one... Isn't entirely true, but I I don't know what I want to say instead.
0: I see, I see. Well, I would just say, even if one person is one person, thanks to a bunch of little miniature sub-persons who are sort of toiling away underneath the hood, that's an account of what it is to be one person. And if you took away half of those little homunculi, you maybe would still wouldn't want to say it's a half a person. Yeah, that's true, that's true. And so too, if, with a community, you wouldn't want to say, there's more of me, the fewer friends I have or contemporaries. One per person is a very primitive idea. So if a self is a a
1: unit, and a body is not a unit, how can a self be a body?
0: Uh Well, I think a body could be a unit in a different kind of way, like a complex unit rather than a simple unit. Ah, There's something like the unity of the organism, and this was an Aristotelian idea that predated Descartes by many, many centuries. It looks like it's really only natural things like organisms that have a certain special kind of unity. The other thing I want to say is I've got an intuition like yours a little bit, which is, it's not that it's like there's about a lot of homunculi or Uh, anything like that. But I think a self requires an element of imaginative projection. So when you say that you're kind of arguing with yourself, Mm. I thought the direction you were going to go in was to say something like this, that my selfhood involves my being able to recognize who I am or think about myself as a self who's like uh, accountable to somebody else. So when I debate with myself, I'm sort of playing the part of a game I might play with somebody else. When they ask me a question, I answer it, and so when I give reasons and so on. So that I'm projecting myself into a role of a participant in a practice or an activity. So I think there's this projective aspect of the self which projects us into the future and is always kind of a work in progress and an imaginative construct that doesn't coincide with any single physical fact about the present moment. I think that's a way in which we do kind of, in a sense, transcend our bodies. For example, to give the Cartesian or the dualist intuition a little bit more fuel, just think about common sense distinctions where we say he's very clever. You can't just substitute body for that. You can't say his body is very clever. That sounds wrong. Like He's very clever. What would it mean to say his body is very clever? (laughs) I mean, it just doesn't seem like it's the same thing. Well, I mean, his body is very clever
1: is a strange way of talking, but if you put a pen in his hand and you say, What's the solution to this uh problem? Yeah. He's will start moving the hand around <laughs> well, and ink will come out <laughs> and it'll be the solution to the problem.
0: So yeah. So maybe that's just but, a But you still don't say, Wow, I didn't know you had such a clever body. <laughs> um or think of that think of this as if I mean, um, why do we say we have a body? Um uh Now, I think there's answers to these kinds of questions. Well, what are the answers? Why do we say we have a body? I mean... Notice, you can as easily say we have a mind. Right. And we do say we have a mind. So you might say, aha, well, Descartes, you know, if you want to say the mind is different from the body, that can't really be your reason, because don't you also say you have a mind? The having is potentially misleading if you think there's something else that has the thing. That's one way I would respond. Well, would you ever want to say there's a primordial thing? Yeah.
1: And it expresses itself in mind and body, uh, and it sort of has them or is them or rejects itself as them. No, I don't want to say
0: anything You don't want to like say that. that. How what come? I, what I want to say is that there's the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's us. And with a certain kind of intelligence, and maybe language is uh, important or necessary, uh, and imagination, uh, the, one of the things this body, this organism, can do is imagine itself beyond itself construct something like a personality or a personhood and recognize it in others so that there's a kind of virtual selfhood that we all recognize. And it's not exactly just a convention uh, or a fiction. It's real, but it is ultimately what this kind of body or this kind of brain can do in regard to itself. But once we've taken an attitude about ourselves as bodies, it looks like there's a little daylight, a little conceptual distinction between us and our bodies, which is why I think it's not easy to know exactly what to say, I mean, about whether we are our bodies or we're not. But that's a little bit of... um,
1: That constructing relationship is a little hard for me to conceive of. Like, how could a body construct a person yeah like bodies do things like yeah. chew food, <laughs> right. yeah you know run now suddenly you can construct a person uh, and i mean i guess
0: it's the brain doing it and we don't know how the brain works so we don't know how it does it but you yeah you might say look what i cannot say is that uh, it's me doing the constructing Because that begs the question, right? What do you mean you? It can't be that it's myself constructing myself, because the whole point is that it's constructing something that wasn't there to begin with. You might have to just say it's something that happens in the brain. This might be like your little homunculi doing all the work. Maybe that those are basically neurons. They're firing in certain patterns. And now, this may ultimately be an unsolvable mystery that we'll just never really understand how it happens. Somehow, It happens that you've got an organism that has the power of language and imagination and thought of a certain kind, and it can now entertain this idea of itself as a self. And now there's a little room for it to think about its body and whether it is its body or not. So here's the closest I can come to a kind of view about this, which is I think that what the self is is the body's ability to eventually wonder whether it is itself (laughs) that's it i mean that's it so yeah it's reflective capacity people have the ability to project themselves
1: into a conflict with their
0: bodies yes yes
1: so for example somebody could be like I'm always attracted to mean people. Whenever I am around a mean person, I have a sexual response and my body would really like to sleep with that person. (laughs) But I've learned that this is bad news for me and everything else I care about. So I'm not going to let my body tell me what to do. Yeah. Now, if we are our body, is this, I'm not going to say is this wrong, but does it give us a better perspective on this? Like, Is it something we shouldn't be doing? Is it something we should be doing, but we should call it something different?
0: uh, No, I don't think it entails anything normative about what you should or shouldn't do. But I do think it's a reminder that we have this capacity that, again, no other animal does, which is to really step back from ourselves and our bodies and our appetites and our desires and govern our behaviors in radically... I don't want to say completely unnatural because it's our nature to be this way, but mm-hmm. in non-instinctive, non-intuitive ways. Human beings can do crazy things just because they get some crazy idea in their minds. Right. So, yeah, we're the perverse organism, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche talked this way. We're the complicated animal that's able to take up an attitude against its own mm-hmm. vital interests and its own living.
1: Well, let's talk about that some more because that sounds pretty interesting. So let's take a little break. Okay, that was a good break. So so we're thinking about how, like, um, even if we are our bodies, we can kind of fold back. Merleau-Ponty sometimes talks about we are the wrinkle yeah, yeah, in the universe. Yeah. We can sort of fold back against ourselves, and that is itself a bodily capacity. I
0: think that's right. I think the thing to keep in mind is that all of this stuff that motivates dualism has to ultimately be understood as what we as embodied agents can do and as abstract again going back to this point about however abstractly we can think it's still rooted in the soil of this bodily perceptual experience because we can't really imagine ourselves as disembodied i mean there's just no way to imagine a mind unless you imagine a kind of ghostly body saint paul is a, a kind of interesting conflation of two traditions one is this Hebrew and Homeric pre-classical Greek idea about the spirit being like the breath. Mm-hmm. And it's really a bodily thing. Mm-hmm. And on the, on the other hand, the Platonic tradition, which was the beginning of dualism, which imagined the soul as really separable from the body. And Paul winds up talking about the material body or the natural body and then the spiritual body. And this, what you will have when you live forever is your spiritual body. Now, I'm not quite sure what that is, but it means when you meet up with grandma, you'll recognize her (laughs) somehow. Um, But I think it's a reminder that you don't really have any clear idea what it would be to be a self completely disembodied. I really think we don't have any notion of a non-bodily disembodied mind or spirit. But we are complicated enough that we can be this, as you say, this wrinkle or this reflexive relation to ourselves. This kind of the heart of existentialism is that's really what we are. And there may just be no scientific account of that at all. It's a deep part of common sense. And maybe it's this is a limit of scientific explanation. You can get a scientific explanation of how the brain works, but you're not going to get a scientific explanation of us or who we are. Where do you get the we? Where do you get the pronoun aspect of this experience from a scientific point of view? Right. And this is
1: something that I've, I think people who are opponents of trans rights mm. don't get mm-hmm. that the pronouns are not in the biology textbook. Right, right, exactly. They're a existential stand we take on our biology yep. or something like yep. that. Um do you think that's fair? I think it's very fair. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, so here's how I want to formulate this question, it's and this is a, a first try, so I may get it wrong. But like when people talk about the performativity And Judith Butler talks about gender as a performance. What's the relationship between performance and biological bodily capacities? Well, (laughs)
0: you have to ask her. (laughs) I mean, I think her view, my own view, is that that view radically underestimates the role of natural, let's say natural, -natural, quasi-natural forces and conditions on our practices and our sense of who we are. I think to conflate it with purely performative conventions makes it look much too uh, contingent and malleable than it may be.
1: I guess what I was hoping you were going to say, and, and maybe I'll be the one to say it, mm-hmm. is that performances are like merleau ponty bodily grip. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And to to do a performance, like we're looking for someone to play Goliath in our production of uh, the Book of Kings, mm. <laughs> well, we probably want someone big. Mm. I mean, they don't have to be. They could be someone who can stand on stilts mm. really well. Mm. They could be someone who just is such an imposing physical presence that they seem like a giant. But there's an interweaving between the performances you can do and the bodily capacities or bodily skills you have.
0: Yeah, I think the stuff that Merleau-Ponty says about the bodily orientation we have on the world and the skills, the comportments and so on really straddles this distinction between nature and culture Mm -hmm. because a lot of this is really natural. Like, for example, the phenomenon of you hear a sound coming from a certain direction, and you can turn around and turn your head to look in the direction the sound is coming from. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you do that? There's another case of which you don't have to think about where your head is, your eyes, or... You're not thinking at all. It's a really fundamental, intuitive thing that you can do and other animals can do, too. So that's not conventional. It's not conventional, I think, that we walk forwards rather than backwards. Mm -hmm. That's why we call it forward because it's what you do. It's hard to walk backwards. And then there's laughing and there's crying. These are not just social conventions. These are really universal innate capacities that get expressed somehow. Now, I think you can expand the notion of performativity to include natural performative responses like laughing and crying, and then that's fine. Then I think it's right to say gender is performative because it is expressed through bodily comportments, many of which may be very natural and more or less built into human nature, and some of which are very culturally specific and changeable, like the particular natural language, so-called natural language you speak. It's going to be wildly different depending on where you grow up, and that's a matter of convention. But once you acquire a native language it gets sedimented and built into your bodily skills so that you can't easily change it so what's very true is that there's a lot of stuff which is genuinely contingent but it, it gets a grip on you early enough in your life that it settles in like your native language or your accent and then it's very hard to change it later on so right uh, it's quasi-natural right. second nature
1: so maybe what previously people thought of was the distinction between The spiritual and the physical is actually a distinction between things that are very hard to change because there's a lot of sunk costs and things that are easier to change.
0: Maybe, maybe. That's right.
1: So this has all been interesting, but I guess I'm sort of trying to figure out like... Why does it matter? Yeah. Why does saying that we're the body, but the body can do all the stuff you used to think the mind can do, like like who
0: cares? What does it matter? Right. Well, I think like where we started, it's like if I'm just my body, I can already feel my body starting to age and get weaker. As you get older, you start feeling your mortality creeping into your body and maybe to your thoughts and your mind. And so it's a reminder of mortality and decay and Decrepitude—that's a little frightening. I, I mean, right. people who think of their now—I don't particularly. I don't think, but maybe we all do. Sort of think of ourselves as kinds of consciousness or awareness, uh, insulated from the uh, vulnerabilities of the body. Uh, and I do actually—I do think that we all probably underestimate our own cognitive deficits. You know, um, what I've noticed here's a little little glimpse into this um little kids don't notice what's in the periphery of their vision so much and very old people don't notice it very much so mm-hmm. when you're kind of in your 20s and 30s you're you're Your visual field is kind of wide open and you notice things all over the place. And as you get older, there's a kind of loss of peripheral attention. So there's a lot more going on with the kind of decay and vulnerability of the mind than we realize. And especially when you just think, well, after all, whatever my mind is, it's something that's going on in my brain and my skull and my body and so on. And that's all kind of headed to, you know, we know where.
1: Right. But is there any is there any option on this you for expanding the self? Like, can I be an animist? Can I be like, this river has a body, like I have a body, and the river flows through me, and I flow through the river? Like, can I get to a more sort of loving communion
0: with the body of the world on this view? Well, I guess that's right, yeah. In fact, Merleau-Ponty even uses the word communion. I mentioned that he grew up Catholic and became an existentialist atheist. But there is a Catholic sort of sentiment in this idea of communion with the world. It's all this talk about interweaving, the entrelach, he calls it, of of ourselves, our minds and our bodies and ourselves and others and the world. We're all interlaced and connected. And there is a kind of comfort in that. After all, we're not imprisoned in our bodies because we're not souls trapped in our bodies. We are the bodies. And so we can feel the sun on your skin, and you can feel the breeze, and you can hear the birds singing, and you you really are woven into the world, and that's nice. So
1: if I'm woven into the birds, (laughs) even if this particular body dies, in some sense... Part of what I am continues to flow on in the birds. I don't know about th- uh, you know. You uh, don't know about that. I th- kind of think that's true. Yeah. I, I, I don't know about that, and I wouldn't attribute it to um, no Merleau Ponty because he does say at the end of th- uh, he quotes, and this was very interesting to me. He quotes Saint Exupery. Oh yeah, who. I know for The Little Prince. The Petit Prince. Yeah. Yeah. But I also know, I guess he was a courageous pilot. He was. Who wrote an interesting memoir. And he quotes him and he says, after all, all we are is a system of relationships.
0: Yeah, that's right. I remember I stayed up all night one time when I was in high school reading Saint-Exupéry's Wind, Sand, and Stars. Do you ever read that?
1: No. What does he have to say about us being a system of relationships? I don't remember
0: that, but he's a brilliant writer. It's very lyrical and beautiful, but he did fly over the desert and crashed in the desert and so all the premise of the little prince you know when he crashes in the desert and then Mm -hmm. he's this little character that's all kind of the background of that is his experience and he did die in the second world war as a pilot i can't tell you much more beyond that but he wrote very beautifully about nature and flight and that experience of being connected to the elements yeah so maybe being the body in some paradoxical
1: way is Consistent with heroically sacrificing the body, which would be interesting. I think
0: so too. Sort of like embracing your mortality. And uh, the advantage of this kind of monism, this kind of phenomenological monism, let's call it, is that you don't feel cut off from everything in the world, like you would if you had this notion that, like the uh, Gnostics, that you've got a little soul, there's a little light that's trapped in the darkness of your body in the darkness of the world. It's it's a much more connected sense of oneness with nature in some ways
1: yeah yeah the mountains might be me too yeah interesting yeah
0: and uh but they too will perish and change and everything sort of ultimately goes away but um maybe there's some equanimity you can gain from that idea of the transience of everything yeah maybe it'll come back like the band says (laughs) that's
1: right (laughs) okay yeah okay well we'll come back at least at least we hope to inshallah um, so thanks for listening, yeah. and uh, we'll be back next week with something else. Uh, some path from uh, from terror to equanimity. It might be exactly. a steep path, but it's worth traversing <laughs> it. Very good. Au revoir. Okay. Everyone. Au revoir, everybody. Bye-bye. Arrivederci. <laughs>
0: This podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and edited by me, Taylor Carmen. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Terrifying Questions.